0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron-Carvajal, and today I will be talking to Laura Briggs about her wonderful book, Taking Children, A History of American Terror, published this year by University of California Press. Um, welcome, Laura. Thank you for talking to me today. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, so before we get into the details of this wonderful book, tell us more about yourself. So you obtained your PhD in American Studies from Brown University and you're currently professor at the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program at University of Massachusetts Amherst. So tell us why you decided to pursue a PhD in American Studies and how your trajectory has evolved over this, the years you've published several monographs. So Tell us what it is, like your experience being a, a professor
0: at an interdisciplinary department. So an interdisciplinary department is clearly my natural home. I started out um, when I was first flying the PhD program. So I was looking at history and history of science and or history of science and medicine. And then I think I only applied to the one American studies program, the one at Brown. And partly that was because um, it has terrific historians associated with it, but also because I was involved in activism related to Puerto Rico and um, Central America, us interventionism and the people I knew who were activists um who had gone to graduate school, were actually at Brown's, American, then American Civilization, now American Studies Department. And so I was like, well, this looks like the right place for me because these are the interesting people. Awesome. Um, yeah. And I, I know your
1: work because you do a lot of uh, work on the history of science, medicine, and it's been Uh, foundational for many scholars so so tell us more about about this long trajectory of yours so you've covered a wide range of topics from reproductive politics neoliberalism u.s empire and imperialism to transnational and transracial adoption and i'm a fan of reproducing empire your first book so so we in a way we see all of those topics converging into this book so tell us more about how you came to write this book in particular and in this format. You seem to be writing for a very broad and general audience. So so tell us more about how the idea about, about, of this project came about, how it materialized. Did the book end up being what you initially thought it was going to be? Were there changes in, in the process of writing it?
0: So thanks for all of those questions. There are a lot in there and I'll try to answer some of them. So what I say I do is I am interested in questions of reproduction and sexuality in the context of U.S. empire, and particularly in the relationship between the United States and Latin America. And so how the work has progressed is from um, work on syphilis sex work and birth control, including sterilization and the testing of the birth control pill in Puerto Rico, to a different kind of nexus. And you talk about history of medicine and science, which is clearly the the center of that first book, Reproducing Empire, to um, I got really interested in transnational adoption as another site where the working out of U.S. foreign policy was happening inside domestic spaces that's what really interests me is the ways that we can blow up the dichotomy between the private and the public foreign policy and domestic spaces and to me i think that following a lot of students of the british empire like the question of the u.s role in the world is deeply implicated in how we live our everyday lives. And so those are the places I look for. And after I wrote the book, Somebody's Children on Transnational and Transracial Adoption, that book ends by saying, you know, we've been through a series of sort of sites where we've debated race and U.S. foreign policy in relationship to adoption. And I really think I said that the next one is going to be around immigration, that child-taking from Central America is going to move into this question of immigration. And I was writing that during the Obama administration, but what was happening was that parents were being separated from their kids in immigration detention as a way of questioning them and threatening them. And also it was happening sort of accidentally in the sense that people were in federal immigration detention and state child welfare organizations were taking kids and simply because people who were in federal immigration detention could not get to hearings, they were losing their children to foster care and adoption. So when we started to learn about the Trump administration taking children from those seeking asylum in the United States, those who had sort of entered the United States, turned themselves immediately over to border patrol and said, I wish to petition for asylum, which is their right under U.S. and international law. We learned that the Trump administration was threatening people into not exercising that right by taking their children and telling them that unless they withdrew their request for asylum, they would not get their children back. And like, so many people i was watching this on the news and horrified by what i was hearing and i got involved with a lawsuit as an expert witness because i had written about this before um, about children separated in the context of immigration detention and so i was an expert witness i wrote a 20-page expert witness brief saying yes the united states has over and over again tried to separate children in uh, in ways that terrorize people, particularly people of color, into essentially doing what they're supposed to do, according to the U.S. state. But the other thing is, as I was writing that, and as somebody with a history in activism, um, and a present in activism, I really wanted to give judges a way to say, and... In every generation, people of good conscience have opposed this and essentially you, the judge should too. And so that gave the sort of general shape to the book. The way the book was different from the brief, though, was that the brief was filed on behalf of the states. And so the states were saying basically, like, you're giving us responsibility for a lot of kids who are going to be super traumatized and the federal government doesn't have the right to impose that burden on the states. And I was saying, well, you know, we should really also talk about state foster care and incarceration and the way that the states take kids in those contexts. And the attorney general's office was like, I know what you're talking about, but we can't put that in the brief because we can't focus in the brief on how states do harm. We can only focus on how the federal government does harm. So the book was also an attempt to sort of fill in the gaps I knew were in the brief.
1: Yes. And so you begin the book by telling us about, you know, this public debate that arose um, in 2018 and 19, and how some critiques, you yourself included, of course, have have pointed out to a relationship between taking children of asylum seekers at the Southwest border, and the histories of slavery, Indian boarding schools, Japanese internment camps, mass incarceration, and the anti-communist wars against populations in Latin America. So, despite this potent criticism, mostly coming from journalists and activists, you also tell us that there was a deliberate attempt to sow confusion and most people in this public conversation were unable to fill in the blanks or correct that misinformation that they were receiving. So your book is an attempt to fill in those blanks and provide a long historical perspective to this debate, and one that is based on rigorous and reliable scholarship. So maybe it could be useful to our listeners if you talk a little bit about Uh, what was happening in those years? And how was the public being misinformed and misled? What was it that it was so frustrating for you as a historian that you really needed to remedy this
0: in the book? Thank you for that question. So the Trump administration is deliberately cruel towards many parts of the populations that it supposedly governs. So And many people have said, with the Trump administration, the cruelty is the point. And there was a sense that indeed he was, and Stephen Miller, who was believed to be the architect of the policy within the administration, were really just sort of feeding red meat to the anti-immigrant base. And the thing about the Trump administration is that it generates its own backlash. It generates its own own opposition. But what that led to was a lot of people saying, well, the problem here is clearly the Trump administration. And if only we could get rid of the Trump administration, then everything would be good. And so we saw a lot of Democratic politicians tweeting things like, there's nothing American about separating children from their parents, and we need to stop And even though I understood the sentiment was designed to try to stop the policy or try to stop the child separation, it also left me just holding my head in the sense that literally George W. Bush said almost exactly that when he was lying to um, a Guatemalan audience about the fact that what was then the INS, no, I guess it was Homeland Security and uh, ICE by then, had just done a raid in New Bedford where they had picked up a lot of people who were at Guatemalan and they were um, threatening them with deportation. And the allegation was that they were in the country illegitimately or illegally. And they literally had separated them from their children, many of whom were left at school or in daycare. And the people in immigration detention, their parents were sent to places like Texas, often and check. And so George W. Bush happened to go to Guatemala at that moment, and he was confronted by crowds who knew this story well because it was their friends and family and country folk who were in immigration detention. And George W. Bush said, no, that's not America. America doesn't separate children. And so the irony of hearing that repeated by opponents of the Trump administration policy was just too much. And so I really wanted people to start thinking systematically um, in a way that a handful of people, of course, certainly already did, Um, activists in particular, were standing up and saying, oh no, we've done this before and we can't do this again. We took, slavers took the children of enslaved people. Native people lost their children to Indian boarding schools. And Japanese immigrants and um, Japanese American citizens were held in internment camps during World War II. We've seen this before, and we and they said, we can't do this again. But more people were coming from the position that it was just a Trump administration. And so I wanted to give a kind of signal boost to the activists who were much more, uh, much smarter about the history than many journalists and certainly a lot of politicians.
1: So yeah, so in this context in particular, you say, and here I'm quoting you: "We need a different conversation about the separation of children from the from their kin and caretakers." So this is the end of the quote. So why why is this the case? And I think maybe you just answered that, but what in which ways? Does the conversation need to be different then?
0: We have a conversation about the taking of children in this country that relies on the idea that it's usually done in the best interests of the child. Uh, that foster care in particular and child welfare agencies in the states and territories and federally recognized tribal nations into tribal nations It's done um, because children are being neglected or abused, and so the point of taking children is to give them a chance, a better chance in their lives. And what I really wanted to hold up is that at every significant juncture where the foster care system has been born or expanded, that has happened in response to the revolt, the rebellion, the activism of the communities that are then targeted to lose their children. And so uh, this seems very, very clear in relationship to oh, the end of crazy. the... In the, Excuse me, wait, hold that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jackson, close the door and read the sign on myself. it. But it says, do not disturb... No, leave the side. Go away. (laughs) Jesus Christ. This happened like four times in my class yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) It's hilarious. (laughs) He just told my do not disturb sign. Well, it is kind of funny, but (laughs) 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 it's okay. (laughs) All right. Um, I'm going to go back to um, wording schools. Yeah. So. Um, wait. Trying to get getting my composure back. <laughs> so this seems particularly clear in relationship to Indian boarding schools, which were established in the 1890s in response to efforts to end for all time the Indian Wars. Um, as the U.S. Anglo Americans in the U.S. spread across what is now the continental U.S., spread across the continent and as railroads spread across the continent um, through the 19th century there were all sorts of conflicts about violation of treaty rights as anglo settlers increasingly took land that had been ceded by treaty and this um, over and over again initiated war between the u.s cavalry and native peoples and The um, many Native peoples were sent to a prisoner of war camp in St. Augustine, Florida. It was run by Lieutenant Colonel Pratt, Richard Pratt. And Richard Pratt went from being the overseer of prisoner of war camps to the overseer of the first Indian boarding school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And he was explicitly using... The same techniques that he had used against prisoners of war against children to try to detribalize them, um, force them to stop using indigenous languages, forcing them to lose connection with kin and caregivers by taking them far from their homes and refusing to let them return. And so it was explicitly a strategy by the cavalry, by the army to separate children from native tribal nations as a way to pacify the Indian wars, to end the Indian wars. And so some of the children who were sent, like the Apache children, White Mountain Apaches, were explicitly prisoners of war when they were sent. Others were sent more voluntarily, but volunteer in big air quotes, right? Because essentially we're talking about Defeated nations um, who are told that the terms of their surrender have to include sending their children far away. So that was one moment when the federal government took responsibility, as it were, to, took children as a strategy for punishing rebellion, ending wars. The other time we see it, it's less explicitly the federal government is in the 18th and 19th century, as a strategy for essentially um, rendering docile, preventing rebellion among enslaved people, uh, African descended peoples in the Americas and in the United States in particular is where the book focuses. While well, it's a strategy in many places in the Americas of taking children from usually their mothers, but from their kin and caregivers as something that was threatened to keep mothers from rebelling, being a problem, um, refusing to do the labor of slavers as demanded of them. And it was also a way to let children know where, what their position was in a, society, in a plantation society, in a slave society, to teach somebody that they're chattel, that they're property. Um, we read in Frederick Douglass who's one of the great abolitionists of the 19th century, about how the absence of connection with his mother was part of the first instance that he knew he was a slave. Another piece of writing we have from that era by a formerly enslaved person, Harriet Jacobs, tells the story of her childhood in two chapters, one where she she didn't know she was enslaved, and then she's separated from her mother, and she learns this is the cruelty of the situation that I'm in. So enslavement relied on taking children as a strategy for turning people from humans fully possessed of their own sense of their own propriety to, um, to people who were terrorized into becoming enslaved.
1: Yeah, so this is the big argument of your book, right? That taking children has been a strategy for terrorizing people for centuries. But this book is not only a history of American terror, as your title suggests, but it's also about how individuals, families, groups, organizations have resisted this terrorizing strategy. So maybe it's, it could be useful for a discussion if to understand how these two stories are intertwined and why you argue that history is both the reason why this theory of cruelty work and still works today, but also why it faltered and why it has failed in, in certain instances or why, you know, um, and I think this makes sense, given uh, what you said about uh, your testimony as an expert, because you were trying to show also that people have resisted and, and you know, denounced these this policies and these practices.
0: Right. So I wrote the brief as an expert to tell judges how to think. But as I wrote the book, the audience I have in mind is much more activists and everyday folks. And I want us to think hard about when strategies for stopping the taking of children have succeeded and where they have failed. And so in 2018 and 2019, one of the things that we saw was that consciously and unconsciously people used the strategies that abolitionists used abolitionists wrote um, pamphlets and put and created woodcuts. This is before the photograph, right? And put broadsides on um, any public space and they wanted to put in front of people over and over again that moment when a child and a mother are separated and the very human pain of that moment. And we saw that strategy very much repeated by journalists and activists as they, um, a fox got a hold of a recording of children crying and being taunted by their, um, by the people holding them who are border patrol agents and we saw photos everywhere in 2018 it was it was a, a quite startling moment in a way to me because i had the abolitionist image in my head and i thought this is this is exactly why obama tried to keep any separation between mothers and children secret because the obama administration knew how effective these images were in mobilizing opposition But then in 2019, something happened that demobilized opposition to child taking at the border. And that was Border Patrol and the Federal Department of Health and Human Services began insisting that they weren't taking children to force their parents to withdraw their asylum claims. They were taking children because their parents had neglected them and they said look this parent has a criminal history and i saw this parent not change a diaper and all of a sudden there was no opposition any longer it's so the failure of the last 50 and 80 years of people to stand up and say wait a minute Is it really true or fair that people deserve what is essentially a civil death penalty, the loss of their children, the extinguishing of their parental rights, simply because they have a criminal history? But we've done that internally within the United States over and over again at the state level and in relationship to incarceration. Or we've said parents have been neglecting their children, and that's why even if The source of the neglect is really that they have a bad landlord and bad housing and exposed wires, especially if those folks are Black or Latinx, they are much more likely to encounter Department of Social Services, Child Welfare Services than they are to encounter housing assistance like Section 8 that would get them in better housing. So the solution to children being impoverished has become, or sometimes becomes, taking them rather than addressing the lousy wages and the complete and total absence of federal and even state support, by and large, for impoverished folks, as a way of ensuring family preservation. We saw that most dramatically um, in the moment in which the essentially the modern foster care system was born we saw um, the foster care system was sort of ad hoc state by state in from the 1920s through the 1940s but in the 1950s and 60s at the height of the school desegregation crisis initially in the south we saw the emergence of a strategy of Massive resistance by white supremacists. That was the phrase that the all white legislatures and the Southern governors were using. We have to engage in massive resistance to ensure that children who are white and children who are black don't go to school together. And one of the most successful strategies was cutting off any support payments to black impoverished mothers and children. And this became a huge deal when Louisiana did it in 1960 in the context of the school desegregation struggle in New Orleans, because the National Urban League stepped in and said, we are not going to allow you to essentially starve children and starve their mothers into submission, into failing to um, send their kids to, to white schools. We're, you can, you're not going to terrorize people like this. And so the National Urban League and the National Federation of Jewish Women and, the, and lots of black churches in New Orleans started cooking for people, raising, raising money for rent, raising money for groceries, so that black communities looked after these kids and the white community couldn't terrorize them into relinquishing their kids. This was a strategy intended to embarrass the Eisenhower administration by making a huge deal of it. The Eisenhower administration was saying, oh, we're not going to get involved. It's a state's rights issue. And they were challenged in an administrative hearing. And while the right of the state to take children who were in a sort of, in a lax moral environment. They were being, Their moral education was being neglected because their mothers were no longer married to a father. Fathers apparently being the bearers of all morality. Um, the Eisenhower administration in its final act, literally in the hours before um, the Kennedy administration stepped in, gave states money to take children and put them in foster care. And so at the last minute, Louisiana was given this huge amount of money, and that's how we got the modern foster care system, was in the school desegregation crisis. Federal money so states can take kids.
1: Yeah, So, um, and before we we talk more about some of the other examples you discuss in the book, I wonder if um, you can talk a little bit about those metaphors that you talk about in the book to describe the history of taking children. So one of them is what our historians call pentimento, and the other one is the idea of ghosts in the machine of memory. So yes. I, I, maybe you can explain to our listeners why these histories, for example the one you just talked about, about the modern foster care system, how these metaphors help you understand uh, the past, and then the repercussions were the new iterations were the ghosts of, of those stories in, in the long history of taking children and in the present.
0: Yes. One of the things that was quite striking to me as the crisis of 2018 and 2019 was playing out was how much all of these pasts were condensed into and present in that moment in the Trump administration's uh, taking of children from asylum seekers, from refugees. And there's something that art historians refer to as pentimento, which is in a painting, when the paint gets really old, it starts to fade, and you can sometimes see through it artists earlier intention you can see a previous sort of draft of the painting and so it seemed to me that what we were seeing as we watched the Trump administration shift to this idiom of neglect was this whole history of school desegregation of white supremacy of racial hate Being played out. The other thing, of course, that was being played out or being repeated, the other ghosts in the machine here, was the history of U.S. wars in Central America. And most of the people who lost their children, at least initially, were in fact from Central America. And Border Patrol was actually specifically targeting people who they believed were Central American at the border to lose their children. And what that immediately called to mind for me, um, and certainly for the parents and the translators who were grappling with this situation, the translators who were often themselves from Central America, particularly those who spoke Guatemalan indigenous languages, was Central American kids had been taken in the context of the Cold War and the civil wars in which the U.S. was involved and often actively training the militaries and paramilitaries that took the children as a tactic of terror in the context of Central American wars. And so there were simply all these layers. They were being put in in an example of Fort Sill in Oklahoma they were, the plan was literally to put children in a facility that had been used as an Indian boarding school, that had been used as a Japanese internment camp. Like, none of these places or things were without their history. And when the Trump administration sort of came to explain why this policy couldn't be overseen by the judiciary, why judges should have nothing to do with Determining whether this was legal, they invoked the plenary power doctrine, and the plenary power doctrine says that the federal government, without oversight, has the right to pursue a proper foreign policy. Well, where does plenary power come from? Doctrine come from? It comes from Indian Wars. When was it invoked? It was invoked in the context of why the U.S federal government could open Indian boarding schools and without the permission of the parents, take kids far from their homes and put them in Indian boarding schools. It was the exact same rationale that was used at the border in 2018 and 2019. So there was no, there was no part of this that wasn't part of this long history. And the phrase, the ghost in the machine of memory is meant also to invoke the ways that histories of resistance, the ways that moments of crisis have over and over again mobilized activism, mobilized resistance, and how we can use the knowledge of that history and the knowledge of what activists successfully did before to think about how we can stop child-taking in the present.
1: Yeah, and I think those images are so powerful. And we see that in the book throughout. Those instances of resistance, uh, those ghostly hauntings that are both, we can see them in the strategy of terror, but also in the strategy of resisting those t- terror. Um, so, so taking Children is about how we got here. And mm-hmm. you do this by exploring four other contexts in the past four centuries in which the U.S. state has either taken children as a tactic of terror or tacitly encouraged it. So in chapter one, you examine slavery and its aftermath. And you've talked a lot about this already. So so I think I, I would like yeah. for us to move to chapter two and keep talking about the case of native children, because I thought that chapter was, was so powerful. And I think there's a lot of things going on there. And I, I really... Uh, thought the use of photographs was very powerful in this chapter because you include photographs that were, when they were taken, they were used to justify and defend the policy of taking native children. So, you know, you've mentioned a little bit uh, about the history of of these boarding schools, uh, but I wonder if you can tell us more about uh, how these native communities resisted. I, I found very interesting that They advanced different ideas about kin, you know, that uh, I, I found crazy that sometimes children were taken because grandmothers were taking care of them and they were considered too old. And I was just like, my grandmother took care of me when I was growing up all the time and it was the best type of care I could ever get. So this type of, when I read this, these cases in which just certain people were considered to be too old or you know, they were not strictly related in terms of like blood, but they were still kin and how the state refused to see this. Um, I just wonder if you can tell us more about this and how this led to the this history of resistance, how this history led to the fight for the
0: Indian Child Welfare Act. Sure, thank you for that question. So the boarding school policy was resisted most powerfully in the run-up to what became the Miriam Report, which was a report on Federal Administration of Indian Affairs. And the American Association on Indian Affairs kept publicizing horrors from boarding schools. And they kept demanding a reckoning from the federal government, which, in fact, they got, sort of, in 1928 with the Miriam Report, which reported that children were ill-housed, ill-fed, ill-clothed, that they were dying of epidemic disease, that there were extensive cemeteries full of the graves of children who had died at boarding school. And in some ways, most dramatically, they said that most of the children were illiterate. So even the pretense that what was happening there was education, was simply not true. In fact, what people were, what children were being trained in was how to be, how to be servants, how girls could do household work, how boys could do farm work. And after 1928, in fact, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was forced to, especially during the New Deal, close down many boarding schools. But what happened next was that by the 1940s, the federal government was once again engaged in, in trying to eliminate the existence of tribal nations by saying that they, they didn't exist. They were So it was a policy called tribal termination. And the federal government ceased to recognize tribal courts, tribal um, councils, all the infrastructure of government and one of the places where this fight was most dramatic was in the dakotas where the Pixlone dam project actually flooded 700 acres of the most fertile land in the dakotas and essentially took them from the great sioux nation and the great sioux nation tried to fight that and the more they fought it the more the state started to insist that it was the only authority that mattered on Indian land. And part of how they did that was to say, well, some mothers are receiving welfare, are getting state payments to support themselves and their children. And therefore, they're under state jurisdiction. And so social workers started to show up on reservations and sometimes with a court order, more often without one, to simply take children of impoverished mothers. And this policy was particularly prominent in the Dakotas. And what they did that was so cruel was to say you've neglected your children. And people felt ashamed of this. But in some places, such as the Spirit Lake Sioux Nation, tribal leadership got involved in saying, no, absolutely, there is no role for state social workers here. And they started to do surveys. How many people have lost children? Under what conditions? And this led to the survey by the American Association on Indian Affairs that publicized or that gathered the data that found that one in three Native children were in out-of-home care by the end of the 1960s. So this policy was most prominent in places where Native kids were a significant population and less prominent in other places. So that number varied. It went as high as nine and 10. And In fact, the American Association on Indian Affairs found that in one tribal nation, literally all of the children had been taken. And so what you see is a fight over land but also over sovereignty, sovereignty over the kids and whether the tribal nation has any authority over its own land and over its own people. And they gathered up lawyers and fought this like crazy. And they also did um, press conferences for the foreign press. There were um, many, many tribal nations had newsletters and newspapers that began to publicize stories of child taking and by the 1970s there was a bill in congress to require a much higher burden of proof before you took a native kid and if you took a native kid then the bill said you had to try to place them with other native parents a native or other native communities and there were hearings held over the course of many years, children, mothers, um, many people went and testified about what had happened. And so that's when we really learned these stories that anybody essentially who didn't have a nuclear family, so children were staying with their grandparents, Um, people were staying with kin who who were kin in, In a native sense, but not, they weren't mother, father, brother, aunt, uncle, grandparent. They were, um, and so what the social workers said was, these children are being neglected. They're being left with people who who are too old. And the sense that elders could be revered, elders were necessary teachers to children, And the Native kinship systems were not the same, as white nuclear families was completely disrespected and in fact taken as a reason to take Native kids. In 1977, the Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act which at least for a time made it much more difficult to take Native kids. There's, I'm hesitating over saying how effective it was because it varies state by state, but also because in many jurisdictions, in many states, people get around um, enforcing the Indian Child Welfare Act simply by failing to investigate where this child comes from. Is this a native kid who might be protected by the Indian Child Welfare Act? Oops, we didn't know. And so these cases are still very much in court, You find the Goldwater Institute, um, a conservative think tank, very involved in Indian Child Welfare Act cases, trying to overturn the Indian Child Welfare Act, trying to make it easier to take Native kids from their families and communities. And many people suspect that the goal behind this is once again to sort of break the authority of tribal nations and make their land available to buy, sell, take, but also to make it easier for, uh, for non-Native people to open casinos. So if there are no real Indian tribes, then they have no authority as a sovereign nation to run a casino.
1: Yeah so and and if our listeners are interested in this story of terrorizing but also of resistance they should go and read the book because it's so so rich and i really like how you managed to include this both both parts of the story very powerfully it's a very hard story to read but it's at the same time a testament to this to native communities to their resilience to their you know their struggle and how this still going on um, so I think we we arrived to Latin America in chapter three, and this is a history I'm more familiar with, and I really appreciate how you go beyond the case of Central America, even if Central America is very important, but you also talk about South America, the case of Argentina is very important here. Um, so maybe some listeners need, uh, at this point need some context to understand why all of these histories of all of these countries are connected to your argument about taking children as a terrorizing strategy within U.S. borders. So in, in some cases, the U.S. was not an active participant, but tacitly accepted what was happening. But in other cases, it participated much more actively. So what can you tell our listeners for them to understand the importance of the history of right-wing anti-communism in Latin America and its importance to the history of taking children.
0: So Argentina is particularly important because activists in Argentina were so effective in telling the story about the taking of children as a Cold War strategy for putting down uh, what were purported to be Interaction of communist and socialist forces. And in fact, it was a way of consolidating power over almost anybody who seemed to dissent from, from the government's fierce anti-communism. So in Argentina, the unraveling of the military junta in the 70s and the effort to prosecute them in the 80s was in fact accomplished in part through the Matres de Plaza de Mayo and the Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo that sought to find children who had been kidnapped and as young children and placed in adoption elsewhere. Elsewhere in the Southern Cone, some of them were found as far away as Chile. And the work of saying, if the military's torturers tried to take children that had been born in Argentina's prisons, particularly as a result of the rape of female political prisons, um those children do not belong with the torturers and the rapists. Those children belong with their grandparents. And that was uh fierce fight to reckon with the legacy of torture and anti-communism in Argentina and beyond Argentina. We know that it reached throughout the Southern Cone. We know that um, these policies had echoes in Franco's Spain. And I w- would want us to be attentive not just to the ways of the scenes. A U.S.-based policy, but also something that's happened throughout the Americas, and obviously Franco's Spain played a significant role in the building of right-wing states that, in Latin America, that the U.S. in turn supported as part of a global Cold War strategy of opposing communism at every turn, in which Latin America emerged as a prominent site for the U S and in central America, the United States, of course the U S military played a role in training militaries and paramilitaries that took children in Guatemala, particularly the children of indigenous people and dropped them off at the red cross. They found their ways into um, international adoptions or dropped them off in Ladino communities and Mestizo communities in uh, Guatemala or other indigenous communities in Guatemala. And it is possible that we've seen these kinds of tactics replayed in Iraq. Children who have turned up in U S prisons in Iraq. So. This is not a local event. It is not just an internal to the United States event. It is not a just state and federal government event. It is also something that the U.S. military and other governments have participated in.
1: Yes, and if our listeners are interested, for example, in the history of of Argentina, uh, with these madres and abuelas have so powerfully, you know, sought to recover this... Lost, I don't know if "lost" is the the word. <laughs> Taken Disap- children disappeared. <laughs> disappeared. Yes. Um, you you mentioned a, a movie I really liked in the book called La Historia Oficial, which is translated to "Official Story," I, I believe, and it was the first the first film, Argentinian film, to ever receive uh, an Oscar for Best Foreign Film or something mm-hmm. like that. So, if listeners want to see that story portrayed in a in a very um, powerful way they can go and check out that movie
0: La story oficial is widely available in the United States it was seen widely in the United States in the 1980s and late 70s it became really the first um, the first document of the Argentine resistance to the military dictatorship.
1: Yes. And I I think, I mean, Argentina, Argentina (laughs) um, has been such a, a, you know, a leading country in terms of thinking about its past and thinking about memory, the museums of memory they have. I mean, it's such a powerful movement in that country. And we can learn so much from it like in Colombia me as a Colombian we're dealing with how to remember our past and how to deal with the history of violence disappearance uh and, and Argentina is such a great case
0: and it's so yes i'm um, nodding yeah. my head you can't see me but i'm nodding vigorous like <laughs> Argentina is so important and Argentine activists have been fantastic and moving as have Salvadoran activists in terms of the human rights groups like Probuscada, that have searched for lost children and often found them.
1: Okay, so our listeners have a lot of things to to check out after they finish listening to this wonderful interview. Um, but we, you know, let's let's keep talking about it because there's so much more in this book. And in chapter four, we arrive to. A chapter that is titled Criminalizing Families of Color. And I I really like this chapter because I think it connects the threats that you have been discussing in the previous chapters. And it's incredibly timely for what's going on today. So tell us more about this chapter and how the war on drugs provided a new context for the taking of children. How did this state use the figure of the quote-unquote crack baby and fetal alcohol syndrome as a way of taking children from Black, Latinx, and Native families. How did families resist again? Uh, Here in this chapter, I see that your previous work on reproduction comes into a conversation, although you've been mentioning this throughout the interview, but it's particularly salient in this chapter, I would say. So tell us more about, about what you're talking about here.
0: So many of us, because of Michelle Alexander's incredible book, The New Jim Crow* have become deeply aware of the history of mass incarceration. Of course, many scholars were talking about it before that, but Michelle Alexander really helped us think that through. But in the same period, in the late 70s and 1980s, we also again saw a doubling of the size of the child welfare system. And the hyper of using drugs and alcohol was... A piece of that, of the reproductive politics story as well, a piece of how people lost their kids to foster care. So it's important to say here that white people and people of color use drugs and alcohol at about the same rates. They use illegal drugs at about the same rates, and they drink during pregnancy at about the same rates. And that's pretty consistent from the 1980s to the present. What is not consistent is the extent to which people get criminalized for that behavior. And so what we saw in the 1980s was the, the birth of the idea of a crack baby. Now, subsequent medical research has told us unequivocally that crack does not have much effect on a pregnancy that there's essentially there's no such thing as a crack baby. But in the late eighties, the belief in the crack baby who was gonna be gonna grow up and have to be constantly in special ed um was being cruelly neglected by by the pregnant woman who was bearing this fetus and subsequently raising this baby. What's on the front pages of the newspaper, anybody who lived through it, who lived through the late eighties as even a a semi-adult cannot escape knowing about crack babies. And the cruel thing, of course, is that it was all a lot. But what was happening at that time is there was a rapid increase in the Reagan and then first Bush administration in the rates of homelessness, impoverishment, unemployment, particularly in Black and Latinx communities. And as a result we saw a rise in infant mortality and a rise in stillbirths and other bad pregnancy outcomes. So that was, it was the correlation of the emergence of crack. And I could say in the book, I say a lot more about why there was so much cocaine in certain regions in the United States and what that had to do with the CIA, and its prosecution of wars in Central America, um, also Plan Colombia. But you'll have to read the book to get that whole connection. But anyway, drugs did not make their way to impoverished communities by themselves or without the, in some cases, acting assistance of the federal government, and in other times just their willingness to look the other way. So crack was supposed to give us a generation of babies blighted from birth to quote a neocon who was talking about this. And so foster care systems, hospitals and police and prosecutors stepped in to save these babies. And they and the foster, size of the foster care system doubled as a result of this hypercriminalization of using drugs. And Black mothers in particular were drug tested in labor and in hospitals, sometimes as a precondition for getting prenatal care at all. And this corresponded with a period in which it was getting more and more difficult to actually get treatment for drug abuse. So in some ways, people were just messed up. And at the same time, middle class white folks were more likely to be using Powdered cocaine, then crack. We've talked a lot about that in relationship to the the sentences that people got for having crack versus powdered cocaine. But the other um, the other significant piece of the story is, if you are using crack, you are much more likely to lose your kid as soon as they were born. And Native women, in contrast, were not tagged with. Um, with using crack, but with fetal alcohol syndrome, they were accused of using alcohol extensively during pregnancy. And again, I need to say, Native women used alcohol during their pregnancy at about the same rate that white and class women did, but they were criminalized in a different way. The other thing is when. Women were found to be abusing alcohol, to have a problem with alcoholism, and to be pregnant or to have a young child. They were surprisingly likely to be charged with a federal crime, to be charged with a felony, Um, so felony child abuse. And because of the history of colonialism and the relationship of the federal government to Native tribal nations and what crimes they get to prosecute, anything that's a felony is prosecuted by the is prosecuted by the federal government. So you have these absurd situations where you have teenagers who have been sexually abused and are dealing with alcoholism and trying to raise this, raise a baby that they maybe want, maybe don't want, definitely don't have enough support for being interviewed by the FBI and trying to explain the whole pain and messiness of their lives to FBI agents who are, who swooped down on reservations and believes that they're going to save babies by harassing these mothers and tribal nations. And so, so mothers wind up in prison. Hundreds of mothers get sent to jail and prisons and thousands of children get sent to foster care in the 70s and 80s and this is simultaneously the period of extreme dis disenfranchisement of black and latinx communities um, under the reagan and first bush administrations and in many ways also the clinton administration that we see represented in mass incarceration we also see represented in poverty rates and unemployment rates
1: yeah and here we're just scratching the surface the book has so much more details examples that i think listeners will just will want to go and and check out and read and it's such a wonderful read it's a short book but it covers so many topics so hopefully listeners will go and buy the book um so we arrive to the last chapter and this is a very important chapter too because it's titled Taking the Children of Refugees. So this kind of, it's the story full circle, right? We, we come back to what we were discussing at the beginning of the interview and how you start the book. So, I mean, here you talk a lot about specific policies, changes and continuities between different administrations, waves of Central American refugees and immigrants, judicial cases and agreements. So there's a lot, Going on in this chapter but of course you cannot talk about all of that but maybe what is something that you want our listeners to understand about this new and i'm using air quotes here because it's not new your argument is that we see these ghosts reappearing and and this is not something that came out of nowhere but what are some of the things that are important for our listeners to understand this more recent period in the history of taking children. How have different administrations addressed the issue? And what are some of the policies that you think that are very important for our listeners to know? Here, you discuss the case of a of mine. I don't know that word in, in English. So generally said Flores and, and the Flores agreement. So can you tell us more about this chapter?
0: Yeah, let me talk about um, Jenny Flores' story because it takes us into sort of the heart of how we got here. So, essentially, I want to say before the Reagan administration, U.S. immigration policy from Mexico, and in many ways through the Reagan administration, the U.S. has long relied on labor from Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America to pick crops um, and more recently to build and construction and, of course, also to do domestic labor. And the expectation that was formed during the Reagan administration was of waves of migrants crossing the border, doing work in the United States, and then returning home. And in some ways, that's a centuries-long pattern of how laborers have moved. And in the Reagan administration, we started to see rising harassment of the people who were coming across the U.S.-Mexico border in the Southwest and California um, in particular to pick crops. And at that stage, it was really about, I think, I think it's fair to say it was really about making the situation of migrant laborers more precarious which in turn forced their wages lower because they had fewer recourses since they weren't paid minimum wage or if they were held, if they were offered some standard housing but the thing that migrants were never supposed to do was to come and stay to come and create lives And so the appearance of children at the border, of course, is a signal that people are building lives here. And people have always done this. It's back to the 1950s and the Bracero program. People came, they worked, they were supposed to go home, and they built lives. They were here. So during the Reagan administration, the INS changed its policies about how it was going to treat children at the border. And so instead of allowing children to be released while they awaited an immigration hearing, so the immigration law, a lot of people think it's really cut and dried, really clear, and I'm not an immigration lawyer, and I'm not going to, I don't want to fill our time with the details of immigration policy, but it's just not it's not very clear at all who has a right and under what circumstances to be in the United States. And so that requires a hearing before an immigration law judge. So for a long time, if children were found at the border, most of them um, most of them weren't found, weren't recognized by Border Patrol. And they just slipped into the communities that they were looking for. They were looking for parents and relatives. But Jenny Lisette Flores was picked up at the border the Reagan administration recently changed its policy, saying that children could not be released to just any family member. They had to be released to an immediate family member, meaning uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and parents. And Jenny's mother was undocumented. And the INS was also forcing people to show proof of citizenship in order to pull their kids out of immigration detention. And so Jenny's mother couldn't do that. And so she said, well, I have a cousin. Jen- uh, Jenny has a cousin who can take custody of her. And the INS said, no, that's not good enough. He's not a close enough relation. And Jenny Flores's mother worked for somebody who knew Ed Asner, who could find an immigration lawyer, who said, this is ridiculous. And... Fought to get kids released from immigration detention. Kids don't belong in jail. Kids don't belong in cages, they argued. And there was a lot of back and forth that continued through the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, and actually into the very beginning of the Obama administration about whether children could be held in cages under these conditions. And what the lawyers were essentially forced to agree to, the case went all the way in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yes, children can be out in cages, um, was at least the government had to agree to hold children in humane conditions. Not, not jails, not detention centers, but essentially um, residential shelters where they could go to school and have access to Clothing and free time and fresh air, and of course, the government has not always respected the the outlines of the Flores Agreement. And the Trump administration was the most outrageous. But after 2001, the Bush administration very much started separating children from asylum-seeking parents and putting them in immigration detention in violation of the Flores Agreement. Amnesty International actually wrote a report about children shackled, children held alone, children made made into um, unaccompanied minors. That's a leading term for if you show up alone at the border. Um, they were made into unaccompanied minors because the INS and then ICE separated them from their parents. And so what I want people to understand is It's very important that people were upset about this policy in 2018. I wish people had been equally upset about it in 2003, when there was actually a bill moving through Congress called the Keep Families Together Act. And I think that we have to be vigilant and aware of this history if we want Children to stop losing their parents and parents to stop losing their children, whether they're immigrants, Latin American, uh, Latinx people, um, who are born in the United States, whether we want African Americans to stop losing kids to foster care, whether we want poor people to stop losing their kids to foster care, that knowing this long history is really important to standing up against it because there are a lot of moves the government has a lot of moves and we've got to be able to anticipate them and understand what they are great this is just a
1: great way i think to round up our discussion i we you know when we when we, fin- when we finish our uh, interviews we usually uh, ask if there's anything that we haven't discussed that you want our listeners to to hear before I let you go. I've taken too much of your time already, but well, th- has anything happened? I don't know, after you finish writing the book uh, that you think is worth mentioning here or, or you think we're good,
0: we're good to go? There are two things that I think it's really important that people know. One is that the Trump administration has used the COVID crisis to essentially end the system of asylum in the United States. So they were taking children in order to try to frighten people into withdrawing petitions for asylum. They've used covid to simply say nobody gets to apply for asylum. There are very particular circumstances under which um they will recognize a claim for asylum if you say you have been tortured in your home country and you will return to a situation where you will literally be tortured and imprisoned, then um two people have since March have been granted asylum hearings but thousands of ch- children and adults have sought asylum in the United States and not even been granted the right to get an asylum here. Have simply been summarily deported immediately. Um, the second thing I think is really important to know is As the Black Lives Matter movement gains a certain foothold, or at least for a moment this summer, gained a certain foothold in the US consciousness, I want people to also think about the fact that the new 2020 Vision for Black Lives produced by the Movement for Black Lives includes a call to eliminate the foster care system as another form of policing of black communities, designed to terrorize people, and it should be defunded in precisely the way that they are calling for—the defunding of the police. So that's the that's the bad news and the good news, and that a mass a black-led mass movement is calling for an end to the foster care system and administration that. I think we can fairly call white supremacist has effectively ended the asylum system. things have only gotten worse uh, since I finished the book and better.
1: yes and I think your book is a uh, I mean it's such a useful tool for the discussion so it's a very time to read I really recommend it to our listeners. Um, So finally, last question, what are you working on? And what are your plans for the future in this crazy uh, COVID world?
0: Well, it's not clear that when any of us are going to be able to go back to archives, right? But the question, so I started my work in Puerto Rico. And the question that's emerged at the forefront of activism in Puerto Rico has been the question of debt. And there's an international debt crisis, and then there's a domestic debt crisis, both of which are sort of concentrated in Puerto Rico. And I thought that there has been a particularly feminist account of globalization, structural adjustment, the elaboration of free trade zones in the Caribbean. And so I want to think about the role of Debt, both international and domestic, in the Caribbean looking at perhaps just Puerto Rico or perhaps I originally conceived it as one that would move from Jamaica to the Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico. I want to do something that would be of use to the activists in Puerto Rico who are so effectively and smartly opposing the taking of sovereignty over that um, island from its elected government and putting it in the hands of a fiscal control board. So I'm really interested in how debt um, plays a role in sovereignty and reproduction, the lives of women and children and the civil society, the social fabric.
1: Well, I really hope you can resume your archival research soon. (laughs) I need to (laughs) get back to archives to urgently. Uh, But thank you, Laura, for this wonderful conversation, uh, for this wonderful book. Uh, It was great to have
0: you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. It was really a pleasure to talk to you.